The New Testament reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's bow once again in prayer together as we approach the Lord's word. Father, we thank you today for your most holy word. We confess that it is your word, and we pray that we would receive it so. Father, grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to hear what it is that you're saying to your church. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts this day, may they be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are back to our series in Ephesians, continuing to plod on. I confess I'm a bit of a plodder, but we will, we will make it through eventually. And uh, our text today is no easy text. In chapter 4, the Apostle Paul makes some very bold commands uh, to the Ephesians as he draws a very stark and a very pronounced line of distinction between the life of faith and the life of the natural man and woman. The new life in Christ and the old life in Adam. Now there are a number of ways to approach the study of humanity, a number of approaches to anthropology. There are many models for us today on how to do this, how to understand the socio-cultural experience of men and women and children. There are a number of these things and we can learn from many of these studies But what I want you to notice today from St. Paul is the plainness of speech and the bold simplicity with which he categorizes humanity. God's word to the Ephesians in chapter 4 says that there are two kinds of human beings. Verse 24, if you have your Bibles open before you, there are those who walk according to a new life, those who put on a new self, created after the likeness and the image of God, righteousness and holiness. And then verse 22, there are those who walk according to the old self. A manner of life, Paul says, that is corrupt, deceitful, darkened, ignorant, hard, callous, and surrendered to every kind of impurity. In this sense, then, the scripture's view of humanity is binary. That is, for Paul, there are only two kinds of categories 
in the biblical uh, view to define humanity. There's the new and there's the old. There's the righteous and there's the corrupt. There's the alive and there's the dead. Well, that's six, you say. Well, you know what I mean. There's the once born and then there's the twice born. Well, someone says that's awfully restrictive. That's awfully limiting. Yes, it is. Paul says there is light and there is dark. Most would have it that there is light and that there is dark, but there's a vast spectrum involved, a wide scale between these two extremes. Men and women may be located anywhere on that gamut. Socrates is way over here, moral uprightness. Stalin, sorry for those who are Russian, way over there at the opposite end. And many, many people are punctuated or peppered in between that vast, uh, that vast scale. Well, that's a pleasant doctrine. That may be even a tempting doctrine, but it's simply not a biblical doctrine. You were once what, says Paul? This is looking ahead now in chapter 5 of Ephesians. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, Ephesians 5.8. Now, you'll notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say you were dark. Paul doesn't say you had less light. But rather, he says, being outside of the wisdom of God and Christ, you were darkness itself. This wasn't the gloaming. <laughs> this wasn't the twilight. This is not a mixture of light and dark. Paul says, outside of Christ, no light whatsoever, just darkness. Just weeks before Heather and I were married, I was living alone in our apartment, our, our very first apartment. Uh, and it was just a few weeks before our wedding. I was there by myself, and it was a basement suite. And our master bedroom, which was rather large, had no windows. <laughs> Didn't pass the egress code. Toronto, Nathan. But we were there in this, this, I suppose it was an illegal basement suite, but a very nice large master bedroom. And the first night that I was there, I didn't have a bedside table. I didn't have a bedside lamp. I didn't have even a bedside radio alarm clock. And so for some reason, I woke up in the middle of the night and it was pitch dark. I couldn't see a thing. I didn't know where I was. My first night, where am I? I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. And I can still recall the feeling of panic of waking up in tangible darkness and I got into the ground and I just groped my way. Where am I for goodness sakes? And I found the closet and I opened it up and I found a light in the closet. And in that confused state, the light told me where I was. And all of a sudden my universe began to make sense to me. The Bible is very, very clear to us that the catastrophe of sin, which all of us have inherited from our first parents, means precisely this, that we have lost the light and we live in the thickest and the darkest of night. Writing on this very chapter, Calvin, the great commentator, says, Adam, after his revolt, was deprived of the true light of God, in the absence of which there was nothing but fearful darkness. And so again, I want you to look with me at how Paul in Ephesians 4 describes the life of the man 
or the life of the woman outside of the light of God in Jesus Christ, starting in verse 17. Let's just walk through these adjectives that Paul uses, and I'll make comments as we go. First of all, their minds, this now in verse 17, their minds are futile. The way they think is futile. The Greek word that Paul uses here is the same word that he uses in uh, Romans 8.20, where he says that through the fall of Adam, you'll remember the whole of creation was subjected to futility. And the word here means emptiness. It means purposelessness. It means to be utterly without value. It's like preparing a gourmet meal and then, where's Corey? Preparing a gourmet meal and then, without any ill will to any whatsoever, walking up to the cliff by the sea and throwing that labor of love to the waves. <laughs> Completely pointless. No benefit whatsoever to any. Such is the life of the man or the woman. Such is the whole of creation outside of the redeeming work of God in Christ. No matter how apparently lofty, no matter how apparently clever or ingenious or kind, no matter how seemingly productive or advantageous, the thoughts and the labors of the human heart are futile because they are without the aim and the direction that can lend them value. And the aim is God. He alone in this universe gives value. He alone infuses things with meaning, whether it's art or music or business or philosophy or relationship. And many of us have not even begun to think of the deep ramifications of the fall and of sin. Sin has made the whole of human existence futile vain. Secondly, Paul goes on to say that the Gentiles, and by Gentiles, Paul means here simply all who are outside of Christ, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance, and they are not innocently ignorant, but you'll notice that Paul says they are ignorant because of something. They are ignorant because of what? because of the hardness of their hearts. Humanity, Paul says, willfully chooses its own darkness. It willfully chooses its own ignorance. And this is Paul's message, if you recall, in Romans chapter 1. By their unrighteousness, they do what? By their unrighteousness, they suppress the knowledge of truth, Paul says. The power of God, says Paul, is clearly visible to all. Nature attests to it. It shouts out the reality of a divine maker. But rather than serve and give glory to an immortal God, humans willfully chose to worship what was made rather than the maker. Humans decided to gaze at themselves rather than gazing lovingly and adoringly at the maker of all things. And so Paul says in Romans 1.22, they became what? They became futile. Same word, in their thinking. And if their thinking is futile, how much more the acts and the endeavors and the plans which proceed from their thoughts. See, the whole universe, Paul says in Romans 1, the stars, 
The plants, the mighty oceans, and all the living, breathing things, they all point to God. They're all signposts that they declare the incomparable worth of the Maker. They all say that God is the reason. God is the destination. God is the point of being. But in humanity's willful folly, we've chosen not to heed the signs. Can you imagine going on a road trip? to some appointment that you must not miss, taking a map with you and willfully, deliberately disobeying all the directions, disobeying all the signs? Well, honey, the map says to take the number 96 to Lumberton. Well, then we'll take the number 10 to Lake Charles. I threw that in for you, Josh. The signs of the universe, they attest to God. The palm trees, they attest to God. They say, this way to meaning. This way to satisfaction, this way to purpose and to joy and to life everlasting. And the human predicament is just this. We look at the signs in our sin and we say, I'd rather look at you than what you're pointing at. I'd rather just sit in the restaurant and content myself with the menu than move past the menu and lay hold of that which is promised to be my everlasting good. And what would you like to have tonight, sir? Oh, I think I'll just have this menu. It looks delightful. And meanwhile, the stomach of our soul gnaws in hunger for the eternal God. It starves itself on the signs. Futile, vain, dark, willfully hard, pointless, the Bible says. And Paul goes on to say, thirdly, that in the unredeemed heart, there's a special kind of callousness. Now, this is verse 19. Inasmuch as men and women, they give themselves up to every kind, not just some, every kind of sensuality, greedy to practice impurity. That is to say that sensuality becomes the hallmark of the sinner. Having robbed himself of communion with God, the sinner tries desperately to satisfy the senses. God's not against the body. He's given us a body. And the pleasures that can be experienced in the body are to be delighted in a most lawful pleasure. But these pleasures simply do not compare to the pleasures of the soul that comes from God alone. Your love, writes the psalmist, is better than what? Your love, oh God, is better than life. The joy you have put in my heart, writes David, is so much more than the joy of wine and the joy of grain. Lord, the disciples say, you've not eaten a thing, Lord. Lord, what's wrong? You've not eaten anything. Oh, he says, I have a meat to eat that you know nothing of. There's a food and a delight that is so much more. My food is to know my Father, and it's to do His will. And think with me of all the good things in this life, the wine, the beer, the food, the travel, the sights and the sounds, the friendship, the laughter, the ecstasy of human companionship, and then reckon that all of these gifts are only small streams 
flowing to us from the eternal fountainhead. And if the stream tastes as good as this, what must it be like to drink from the fountain? When I was young, I recall in my parents' room, my dad had an alarm clock that had a tape player in it. And I would go at times and I would I'd creep into his room and I would, I wouldn't creep, but I'd go into his room and I'd take a, one of my cassettes and I'd stick it in that alarm clock. And you can imagine what it sounded like, an alarm clock, tiny little insignificant speaker. And imagine listening to Handel's Messiah through that alarm clock and then going to hear it in person, the full orchestral presentation at the TSO where the sound and the music courses right through you. And even that doesn't even remotely compare to experiencing the fullness of God himself in comparison to the pleasures of his gifts. And fallen humanity alienated, Paul says, alienated from the life of God, seeks to satisfy itself with ever-increasing doses of sensuality. They can't please the soul, and so they please the five senses. Now, sex isn't the only thing in Paul's mind here, but sex is perhaps the easiest of these gifts to worship because of the potency of its pleasure. And as a culture, we are drowning in sexual addiction. Hollywood itself is awash with this kind of devotion to sensuality. It is very difficult to find a film or a show to watch where you're not asked to play the voyeur, to watch the God-given privacy of a man or a woman's sexuality displayed for your gratification or for your curiosity. But note what Paul says now in verse 21. This isn't what you've been taught. This isn't the truth as you've learned in Jesus. What you've learned in Jesus is to be done with this kind of thing. What you've learned in the Lord is to be done with this kind of living. The gospel comes to deliver you from your futility. Jesus Christ loved you and he gave himself for you so that you could be delivered from pointless pursuits. And Christ gives you a new life, one with aim, one with purpose, one that can use the gifts of God for the right end. That is to bring you into closer companionship with the Father. And so the word of God comes to each one of us today and it says to all of us in an unqualified way, all of us who claim to be disciples today of Jesus, you must no longer walk as the unbelievers do. God has not given you the freedom to do this. And I want to ask you some simple questions today because this pertains to every one of us. Where are you succumbing to the futility of unbelief? Where did your life this past week look more like the life of an unbeliever than a man or a woman who clings to the truth as it is in Jesus? How are you living that makes your life more about the creature than it does about the creator? 
How about the things that you're watching? You who are being created in the likeness of God in the image of true holiness and righteousness, what do you permit your eyes to see? Do you secretly relish the sensuality of the world? The various stages of undress, the voyeurism, the covetousness, the appetitive longing for a man or for a woman who is not yours to look at. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. It has not been permitted for you to do this as followers of Jesus. You must deliberately, Paul says, intentionally, in the grace and in the strength of God, put this life off like a dirty old garment. And you must deliberately, intentionally, even quantifiably, in the grace and in the strength of God, put on the new way, the way of following Jesus, sitting at his feet, making ample space for the place of prayer to be open vessels, to receive the fullness of his Holy Spirit, to listen to his words, to let the cleansing power of the word of God cleanse you from these old ways and then rise in strength to obey his holy commands. And so today, if you feel or if you fear that you are outside of Christ, that your life is not about God the way that the Bible talks about, then Jesus, he stands at the door and he knocks. And if anyone hears his voice today and if they open the doors of their heart to him, he promises to meet you. He promises to come in. He promises to enter your life and to change you from the inside out to get that moldy fuzz out and to make you like himself. And it begins simply with this simple prayer. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And all of us today, in our own way, we need to pray this prayer in response to God's word. And so let's pray his word together. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Grant me grace to put off the old life. And grant me grace to put on the new life, the life as it is in Jesus. The life that points me always to the treasure that is in God. In the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.